You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I am Rory Katiska-Jacobson, one of the portfolio managers at Alan Gray, and your host for this episode. Alan Gray is celebrating a special milestone this year, 50 years of investing. Over the last five decades, we have always put our clients first, and we would like to thank you for placing your trust in us. We work tirelessly to ensure that your trust in Alan Gray remains well-placed. Joining me for this conversation is my colleague and friend, Matthew Spencer, from our offshore partner, Orbis. Matt is based in Bermuda and heads the team of investment counselors who are responsible for servicing Orbis's institutional clients and investment consultants. The global stock market boom we have seen in recent years seems to be making way for a stock picker's paradise. In this episode, we will delve into the major global themes that are shaping the opportunities for long-term investors. Matt, welcome. You're originally from Joburg, but as I understand it, you've been moved to Bermuda to get a job. Could you not get a job in Joburg? <laughs> Firstly, thanks for having me. It's good to be back in the mother country. And that's right, I did leave Johannesburg 20 years ago. I could get a job. I was with the Coopers. I was coming to the end of my training contract and essentially, you know, you could go and finish your training contract off in New York or San Diego or Bermuda. And when I heard about Bermuda, you can understand that that got me excited. And and one of the reasons that it did get me excited is that I knew that the person, Alan Gray himself, lived in Bermuda. So I thought, you know, let me go over with PwC, do my 18-month contract. But before I left the island, I promised myself that I would find him and introduce myself. So you were the original Alan Gray fanboy. I mean, <laughs> how did that go? How exactly did you find him or, or hunt him down? I, I didn't. I tried pretty hard and uh, I used my connections. I mean, Bermuda's a tiny island. What you find is you build up a bit of a community. And the um, person that I played hockey with was Alan Gilbertson, who was a uh, former president of, of Orbis. And I said, OK, well, this is my end. And cut a long story short, uh, he wasn't able to arrange a, a meeting with Alan, but he was with Will Gray, which is, which is Alan's son. So Will and I met. I don't think he was particularly impressed, but, you know, I kept coming back and trying. And, you know, after nine interviews, I think uh, three IQ tests and a personality test, I finally got through the door. And uh, since then, I've, I've never looked back. And I guess it helped with the low population in Bermuda. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, you've been relatively fortunate then to be with Orbis ever since. And one of the benefits, I guess, of being based in Bermuda is you actually worked alongside Will and Alan. Um, I don't know if you have any interesting anecdotes or stories that kind of stand out for you in thinking about what it was like to work with Alan. When I started at Orbis, my mentor was Craig Bodenstab, and I learned so much from him, but he was very militant, and he would sort of breathe the fear of God into you. And, you know, I remember him saying that, Alan, you know, one of his strategies is he'd invite you out for lunch or dinner, and he'd ask you questions that he knew the answers to, to see if you were a, a fool or not. And it really grill, you know, whether it was the CFOs or the CEOs of different companies. And so, you know, you, you always got to watch out if you're going to dinner or lunch with Alan. And so I'd heard this and, you know, it wasn't only Craig who said this. And, you know, one day I was sitting in my office uh, in Bermuda, which is just diagonally across from Alan's. And it was about three o'clock and all of a sudden he, he strolled in. And he was like, Matt, uh, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And I was like, uh, uh, no plans, Alan. <laughs> he goes, uh, well, would you like to come to my house for dinner at 6.30? And I was like, oh, that, that, sounds, uh, that sounds lovely. Just uh, may I ask, Alan, uh, you know, how many of us are going to be at this dinner? 
And he was like, no, no, it's just going to be you and I. So I was like, oh, okay, um, is there any topic in particular that you, um, you want to discuss? And he said, yeah, there, there is actually, um, I believe your wife is from Guernsey and uh, we're looking to open up a, a presence in the Channel Islands and I want to learn all about Guernsey. And I was like, oh, you know, you've come to the right spot. <laughs> I know all about that. And anyway, that afternoon after three o'clock, I was on the internet just scanning, learning everything I could about the Channel Islands. You know, by the time quarter past six came, I said, oof, I better jump on my scooter and get up there. And I thought, you can't pitch up empty-handed to uh, a dinner party. You better go, you know, buy a nice bottle of wine. And so I went to the local bottle store. And what kind of wine do you buy for, for Alan Gray? You know, someone who's, who's got everything. You buy the most expensive wine, he's going to think you're a fool. And you can't pitch up with... Um, you know, your everyday box wine. So anyway, I saw this Chianti Classica, I'll never forget, and it was, you know, two for the price of one or some sort of deal. And I thought, Alan's all about value for money. He's going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I pitched up at his house with these two bottles of wine. And then I'm thinking, oh, hang on, you can't have two bottles of wine. You look like it's some sort of, you know, frat party or something. So I put the one back in my bike and uh, it went in. And, and yeah, I think it was about either between the starter and the main course or just after the starter where Alan realized that he knew more about Guernsey and the Channel Islands than I did. <laughs> but it was a great evening. We spoke about books we had read and his plans for the philanthropy and you know the stocks he was interested in and it was, it was fantastic. And I remember on the scooter ride home thinking, you know, I think I've got away with that. I don't think he thinks I'm a, a complete imbecile. Next day I'm sitting at my office, same time by three o'clock, comes into my office and he's like, Matt, what are you doing for dinner tonight? <laughs> I'm like, oh no, here we go again. And I said, no, no plans, Alan. Uh, so he said, well, you know, same time at my house at, at 6.30. And I was like, you know, I knew I was a hit. It was what was going through my head. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll see you there. And then just before he walks out, he stops and turns around and says, but this time, can you bring your wife? Because I'd really like to learn something about Guernsey. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, and so, so I phoned my wife up and I said, listen, we got dinner at Alan's house. And she says, ah, that's very sweet, but um, I've got netball practice. And I said, no, 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 you got dinner at, at Alan's house. We've got to get there. And she's like, oh, you're so, you're so last minute. Okay, I'll go pick up a bottle of wine. And I was like, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm one step ahead of you. <laughs> and so that's a, that's a fun memory I'll always have of, of Alan. But he was, he was fantastic, very focused. You know, he'd beat me into the office every day and work later and, he would just sort of burn holes through the pages uh, in a very average-looking office, just doing what he loved, and that was that was stock picking. That's an amazing story, and I think that talks a lot about the man as well. Maybe before we move on to Marcus, just kind of one last question about Bermuda. So one of the challenges we're kind of dealing with in South Africa at the moment is load shedding and the lack of power. Are there any particularly unique challenges that you face with in Bermuda? I mean. Is the grass greener on that side of the ocean, or so? It, it is a fantastic place. I got to say. I mean, I've I've made a a lot of bad decisions in my life, but Bermuda and my and my job and, and my wife are, are certainly not not one of them. And and Bermuda is fantastic, but it, it does have its problems. You know, unlike the electricity here, yeah, our problem there, to a large extent, is the water because of course there's no dams or, or rivers or anything like that. It literally is a forty-kilometer-long rock and one-kilometer-wide rock. It's just this thin little island in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, a lot higher than people think. It's sort of in line with with North Carolina, and and so we don't have any sort of natural water. So if you look at the houses in Bermuda, they're very distinct, and they've got these spiral-like roofs. When the rain comes down, it spirals down these limestone roofs and goes into tanks underneath the house, and that's where you get uh, you get all your water from. So every now and again, when it is particularly dry, we can be in a in a bit of a tough spot with the water, but not the electricity. 
Okay, well, let's move on to markets. Matt, what does the global landscape look like at the moment to you? What stands out? If you look at our portfolio, and we, we're always a little bit you know, reticent to speak to themes because we bottom up stock pickers. But you know, one thing which is clearly obvious is that we've never been more overweight, uh, your old economy or, or value stocks in our global portfolio at the moment, You know, uh, more so than just before the tech bubble burst. So 70% of our portfolio now is in, in what I would call value stocks. And there's, there's four buckets. We've got your critical infrastructure and, and energy. We then got your quality cyclicals, like a semiconductor chips and, and, and interactive brokers. Uh, and then you've got your banks. And then you've got a catch-all bucket, which is everything from BMW to a, a U.S. logistics company. And I think, you know, what's led us there has been our bottom-up stock picking. And, you know, why it's led us there is that, you know, you look at what the environment that we've had since COVID, where you had all this stimulus which was pumped into the system. And, you know, it got to the extent where you were an American sitting at home, locked away, and checks were arriving, you know, at your doorstep, and you couldn't do much because you locked away, spreading bad ideas on social media and, and accessing the markets has never been easier. You could open a Robinhood account in the, in the space of four hours. And so all this money flooded into the market, and it pushed the, the value of the market up quite considerably, and, and that's been, you know, well written about. What was less written about is that there was a, a clear bifurcation or fault line between sort of new economy or, or growth stocks and your old economy and and value stocks. And so the, the former got insanely expensive. And it's not surprising. Whenever there is loose money in the system, it seems to chase the, the, the new shiny item. And so your tech stocks, for example, got, got really expensive where your, your energy and your, your commodities, et cetera, those uh, remain quite cheap. And so through our investment philosophy where we're not going to overpay for companies that's led us to more more of these um, old economy stocks. And if you look at what's happened more recently, I guess there's also a divide even within the tech space where you've seen some of these new age or kind of unproven tech businesses that ran incredibly hard, but then in the last 12 to 18 months have fallen 50, 60, 70%, you know, the likes of Kazuka, Beyond Meat. But then at the same time, you've seen a significant further rally or, or additional kind of bifurcation between the large megatech uh, stocks and, and the rest of the market. And that's right. And so, you know, you shouldn't really speak with tech with, with one broad brush, and, and which I have been doing. So so that is true. I mean, the, the real speculative stuff, you know, as soon as rates started go, to go up, those were the ones that were, were crushed first. Now, I don't think they cleaned out altogether, but it, they, they have had a tough time. And now you're your more established companies like your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Netflix, your Googles, or Alphabet, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they, they have come down a, a bit and their valuations are starting to look more reasonable, but we are looking at them. There's no doubt about it. And in fact, there's a small position in, in Alphabet, which has come into the portfolio, but they're not quite cheap enough, we don't think, just yet in order to dislodge uh, these old economy businesses. And, and I think that the one thing that we would point to is that, you know, if you look at the valuations that they're trading at now, if they had to warrant those valuations, then the, you know, the next 10 years is going to be the, have to be the same as the last 10 years. And it's just been fantastic for those companies in the last 10 years in terms of the growth that they've seen. I mean, they're all trillion dollar companies, some are $2 trillion companies. And if they're going to keep growing at the pace that they have been growing, then, you know, they're either going to have to start eating each other's lunch, which we are seeing. I mean, you know, Microsoft trying to get... Amazon's cloud business and, you know, Amazon trying to get Netflix's streaming business, et cetera, et cetera. When that happens, your margins start getting compressed. And so you don't have the earnings power 
So that's something that we we do worry about. Or they're going to have to start going into other markets. And if you think they're going to start breaking into China and other markets, I think that's uh, that's very unlikely. And so we are watching them. Not quite uh, cheap enough for us uh, just yet to be to be getting in. And I mean, I guess further to that, there seems to be a lot of positive sentiment around artificial intelligence. Mm. And what can that mean for some of these larger tech stocks? You know, you've seen ChatGBT, Alphabet has got a competing offering through BARD. And then I guess at the most extreme part of that is something like NVIDIA, which is a market cap of just over $700 billion, trades on 29 times revenue. That's dead right. I mean, this artificial intelligence, I think people are finally coming to realize how it is going to change our civilization and how powerful it is going to be. But uh, we don't know who's going to win the race. We don't know whether it's going to be Google or, or Microsoft or a company that we'd never heard before, whether it's going to be the USA or China. And so, you know, the sort of the, the strategy that we play in there is one thing we do know is that they're all going to need these semiconductor chips. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. And if you look at the semiconductor industry, you, you can really slice it down the middle. On the one side, you've got logic, the logic chips, which is, you know, makes your, your phone so smart and your computer do all the cool stuff that it does. And it's really what AI is going to run off. And uh, you mentioned NVIDIA there. That, that's where they would fit in. They actually don't make the chips, but they would design them. So, you know, it's becoming so complicated to, to design now. Um, and then they would give it to something like Taiwan Semiconductor to actually to make the, the cutting edge chips. And, and those, those aren't the semiconductors that we're that excited about. What we're really excited about is the, the other side of the industry, which is your, your memory chips. You know, what we like about that is it's far more of a, a commoditized industry. In other words, a, you know, a memory chip from Samsung is the same as a memory chip from SK Hynix, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the past, this is an industry which has just been absolutely brutally cyclical. Um, and you'd get these companies that would invest between 10 and $15 billion to get a, a fabrication plant up and running. And when you spend that kind of money, you want to make sure you're pumping out as many memory chips as you possibly can. And inevitably, this would lead to an oversupply. The price of the memory chips would crash. And then it was just a, a battle of attrition. You know, who can hang in there the longest? And even governments would step in and support their local champions. And, uh, but inevitably, companies then would start going bankrupt. Uh, but those companies that were left around would make, uh, make super profits. So if you could spot the bottom of the cycle and back the winning horse, you could do fantastically well. And, you know, there were 14 companies back in 2000. As we've gone through the cycles, there's only, you know, three left now uh, that make these memory chips. And they're starting to behave a lot more rationally. And it's Samsung and Micron in particular that we're interested in, two companies we've looked at you know, for 20 years. Uh, so we know what to look for. And, and just looking at how they cut in their capital and how the, the inventory is starting to be cut back as well, we believe we're pretty close to the bottom of the cycle. And so that's how we're playing this whole sort of tech space is to, to use that analogy of the gold rush where the people who made the money were the people who sold the picks and the, and the spades to the, the people digging rather than backing a particular person digging for gold. So we've got a fairly sizable position in those semiconductors. And I guess Samsung's a little bit unique in that they participate both in the memory chips and the logic chips. Yeah, so that's right. They are an incredible company. And on the logic side, I think the, the thing I'd underscore there is that it's got so complicated to make these chips that there's only three companies now that can make the latest and the greatest chips, and that's TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung, and then Intel, and, and, and maybe I'm being a bit generous including Intel there. 
But, uh, you know, when you hear that and you hear all about AI and how it's going to transform civilization and, and Taiwan Semiconductor is, is one of those, uh, those companies, you can see what all the hoo-ha around uh, Taiwan is about. Okay, and if, we, and if we just come back to one of the other pockets where you said you were finding value, it was in, in the old economy stocks, you know, the energy stocks. If you can just unpack why you have conviction in that, in that particular sector. Yeah, so the reason is that, you know, energy is just extraordinarily cheap, right? And there's been a huge underinvestment now for more than a decade. You know, it's something we've been excited about for, for quite some time and overweight energy. But if you look at the names that are in the portfolio now, uh, they're slightly different to the names that were in the portfolio, say, you know, this time, this time last year. Uh, previously, you would have seen, you know, the Shells and the and the Chesapeake's and the companies that are getting the stuff, you know, out of the ground. And if you look at it now, it's more your Schlumbergers and your and, and your Kinder Morgans, and so you know, those are the the critical infrastructure. And then another theme which is rising uh, in the portfolio is looking for those energy companies that are going to be tr- part of the transition from fossil fuels to renewables, but are priced like they're part of the problem, but are actually moving to be being part of the solution. Um, and so, so a company there which springs to mind is, is AES, which is a big US utility. So I think of it as, as ESCOM on steroids. I think it provides energy to actually 14, 14 countries. Uh, and it's a fantastic company, you know. It's it's it's. Eskom doesn't provide energy to one country. Just to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so way, so way better than Eskom, but you know, and it's, it's great. It's got a good dividend yield. It's got good growth prospects. It actually generates you know something like forty percent of its power from renewables already. Uh, yet it trades at a forty percent discount to um, to its peers, and so this is the kind of stuff that would ping up on our radar, and we say, hang on a second, that doesn't make sense. What's going on here? And when you look underneath the hood, you know, what you'll notice is that, you know, still 20% of its energy is, is generated from thermal coal. And thermal coal is really the one fossil fuel which is uninvestable and a lot of asset owners, you know, whether it's pension funds or, or whatever it is, just won't touch it, right? And uh, if you do a little bit more digging, you know, what you would find is that they're investing a huge amount in solar and grid-scale battery and all this great renewable stuff, but more importantly, they're slowly getting rid of their coal, right? So if we're having this conversation in 2018, 50% of their power was generated by, by coal, and that's been coming down to 25 and now down to 20%. And by 2025, maybe 2026, they're going to have no more coal left. And so we, we would expect it to, to, to re-rate, and you're slowly starting to see that uh, in the price. So, so, you know, that's a kind of like dislocation we're looking for, that if it does play out right, it'll be great for our clients, it'll be great for the company and, uh, and great for the environment. Okay, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point, I guess. And the whole energy transition is extremely topical at this point in time. And I guess one of the most misleading acts of government in the US has been the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think the name is incredibly misleading in that if they're going to spend the level of spending that they're going to incur, it's more likely to result in, in inflation than not. Mm-hmm. And so just how are you thinking about inflation, how that's impacting the portfolio? That's, a, that's an interesting point, and it's, it's deeply complicated. But to try and simplify it, I mean, you, if you go back 40 years now, right, you had these huge deflationary uh, pressures all around the world. You had, you know, Reagan and Thatcher that, that broke the trade unions back in the 80s, so you got access to, to cheaper labor. That labor got even cheaper when China joined the World Trade Organization. Now every red-blooded capitalist in the U.S. was shipping off its um, 
its production to a cheaper area like like China, which was hugely deflationary. You know, you saw the end of the Cold War, so countries no longer had to spend two or three percent of their GDP on arms. So that uh, was deflationary um, as well. And then, of course, you had the global financial crisis, and central banks basically had to take interest rates all the way down to to zero, which again was deflationary. And you know, you live in the Western world, and you you really haven't known inflation, certainly like you know it in South Africa here, for quite some time. And we feel that some of those deflationary headwinds are now turning turning the other way, right? I mean, your your wage bill is going to get a lot more more expensive. I mean, I think this is a great chart that we have. It shows that there's something like 1.7 jobs for every American looking for a job in the US. And what does that tell you? If you want to keep your talent, you're going to have to start paying more, which is going to be inflationary. You've also got the end of the peace dividend. You know, this rise of the war in the Ukraine, people are going to have to start spending money on defense. That's not productive. So it's going to be inflationary. And then to your point, you know, if we are going to go green and more renewable, uh, I read a, a piece by GMO that if we're going to actually commit to what, we, what we've agreed to in the Paris Accord, it's going to cost us $100 trillion, right? And it might be money well spent. It might save the human race. But regardless of what you think in that regard, it's going to be uh, inflationary. And so, you know, inflation is definitely something which is which is on our minds. And, um, you know, you look at our balanced fund in particular, I think it's doing a great job of protecting our, our clients' purchasing power. And, you know, how it's doing that is, you know, it's staying away from, from government bonds to a large extent, which we think are, are expensive, and it's replacing it with things like gold. So we've got 10%, about 10% of the portfolio in gold at the moment, which is quite high. Which will And is that just pure gold or gold and gold shares? Yeah, so, so it's a mixture of the two, about 5% of, of pure gold and 5% of the, of the gold producers like, like Barrick Gold in particular, which we like. And then we've got tips as well. So, you know, in, inflationary pr- protected treasuries. So, you know, you, you get an increase of your purchasing power by 1.4%, then plus whatever inflation is. And, you know, you'd think... That everyone is petrified of inflation because you you know you open up the Financial Times, there's always an article on inflation, BBC, you name it. What it's actually priced in into the market, it's you know two to two point five percent for the for the next uh, ten years in the in the US, which seems you know too low for us. So you know the other thing we're doing is instead of going into into bonds, we've also got quite a large exposure now to hedged equity which is essentially, you know, in our balanced fund, it's quite a large portion and it's essentially optimal. So what you get with that hedged equity is is the cash return, which is about 5%. And then any, you know, outperformance, Orbis stocks uh, beat the market by. So we we have nice alpha. You could get 5%, we have 5% alpha. That's a nice, nice 10% return. And then, of course, in the equities that you look at, we're favoring these old economy businesses. And why are those so great? Because to a large extent, they are inflation protected so you know they can increase their prices where, with inflation you know they're churning out cash flows right now not not far out into the into the future um, and so really you know a bunch of real businesses old businesses but um, ones that can can retain their purchasing power and the other interesting aspect i guess of that is in the old world economy stocks you haven't seen this gold rush or this suddenly huge amount of capital coming into those sectors. In fact, if anything, the producers and the manufacturers have stayed relatively capital disciplined. So that's right. And you haven't seen a you know, mass influx of, of capital. So the, the stocks are cheap. 
and they're churning out good cash flows. I mean, you, you look at some of our energy stocks. I mean, they, they had free cash flow yields of between 15 and 20 percent, which means that they can, you know, buy back the entire company in the space of five years with the cash that they that they're churning off. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, crazy. Where you look at some of the tech stocks, even the good big tech stocks that are that that we like, some of them have a free cash flow yield of between three and four percent. So it take them, you know, 25 to 30 years to buy the entire business back. So it just goes to show how incredibly cheap and beaten up they did get. And of course, with our philosophy, that's where we would end up. And so I guess it's important maybe just highlight is you don't bake into your valuations or models a re-rating. It's more based on the pure fundamental economics. Yeah. So, I mean, it differs from company to company. So, for example, AES, we'd be baking in a, in a re-rating. You know, but in other companies, I suppose one that you own as well, Glencore, I don't think we're expecting a particularly big re-rating there. That would be more, you know, uh, dividends and, and share buybacks. That's certainly how we value it this side. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. We're not expecting someone suddenly to pay us 13 or 14 <laughs> yeah. times for half the business, which is coal thermal coal mining. And then and then maybe just on the, on the buybacks, the one thing that also I would also like to maybe highlight is when we evaluate these companies, we actually look at the share register and whether buybacks are resulting in a reduction in the shares in issue because what you've certainly seen in the US over the last few years is any number of companies buy back shares but in actuality that's just another form of stock-based compensation for their employees because if you look at the the bottom line where the absolute number of shares in issue are they're not shrinking they're growing whereas for a number of these old economy stocks you are seeing a reduction in the shares in issue and so those buybacks are real and then I guess one of the topical issue worth probably discussing, it's been all over the news the last few months, is the banking crisis that started in the US. Maybe just your, your high-level thoughts on what's transpired there. So I think that was particularly disappointing. Probably not for the reasons that you think, but you know the, the key takeaway from the mini banking crisis in March was that the market stepped back and said, you see, central banks can't raise rates because when they do, the whole system falls apart. And why is that important? Well, that's important because then investors have said, okay, well, then let's dust off the old playbook that worked so well in the in the old cycle and let's go back to these new economy slash growth stocks and let's forget about the, the, the value stocks. And so you would have seen that March would have been a, an awful month for a firm like Orbis where we overweight these old economy stocks. And so, so you know, what, what did happen with this whole, this whole banking crisis? Well, on the one side of the Atlantic in, in Europe, you had Credit Suisse collapse. And then on the other side, you had a number of U.S. regional banks collapse. You know, first it was, uh, was SVB, you know, followed by Signature and, and, and First Republic. And um, I think, you know, the two most important things first, we didn't own Credit Suisse or any of these regional U.S. banks. In fact, we didn't own any U.S. banks whatsoever. We, we did look at them, but I think the conclusion we came to is that they were too expensive and that in some cases they were carrying, you know, unnecessary risk. And then the second question we're getting all the time is, hey, is this, is this another meltdown? Is this another 2008 we were going to see a meltdown of the of the banking system. Our answer there is uh, we we don't think so, and the reason for that is that the banking system is far stronger. It's it's better capitalized, so banks can absorb shocks far better. They've been far better disciplined in in writing their loans. The regulators have had their eyes on them, so there's less shenanigans. And of course, those toxic assets of your CDOs and your CLOs and your uh, your ninja loans, um, you know, those are have been flushed out of the system. Just maybe f- for the interest of the average listener, what is a ninja loan? So your your ninja loan, uh, the first time I came across it was in Bermuda uh, when I was auditing for PwC and we we're looking at these these kind of securities. And um, 
you know, I came across Ninja Loan, which I thought was a really cool name for a loan, uh, until I learned that the Ninja stood for no income, no job or assets. So, you know, hey, listen, if you don't have any income or a job or an asset, don't worry about it. We got your back. We'll lend you a whole bunch of money. And then we'll take it and we'll, you know, we'll wrap it up and securitize it and put it into tranches along with a whole bunch of mortgage-backed securities that no one really understands and inject it far and wide into the, in, into the system. And that was essentially the, the sort of the credit event we had in 2008, which ca caused the, uh, the meltdown. So it's unlikely we're going to see that. But there, there is one big caveat that I'd say is that just by the leveraged nature of banks, it is a sector of confidence. So if you have a fundamental vacuum of the confidence out of that sector, then, you know, they would fail. But we think that's incredibly unlikely. And so, you know, the question is, well, then, you know, if it's not so bad, can you tell us what actually what happened with these regional banks in the US? And, you know, you start with SVB. And, uh, you know, SVB starts with Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, as its name suggests, it was the bank of choice for these tech startups and these uh, these venture capitalists. So, you know, it's never been easier in the last couple of years for these tech startups and venture capitalists to raise money. So they'd have this money. They needed a bank. Silicon Valley Bank was their bank of choice. They would uh, give them the money. Silicon Valley Bank would keep a bit of cash on hand, maybe 8%. And, and then this is where they made the big mistake. The rest they would put into, into long-dated bonds. And why is that a mistake? Because, of course, if you put them into long-dated bonds and interest rates go up, those bonds are going to get absolutely hammered because there you are holding a bond that's going to give you below market rate for a, a long period of time. Now, now shockingly, this, this could have all been avoided uh, with simple interest rate hedging. But SVB were without a, a risk manager for more than a year, so they didn't do that. Left a huge hole uh, in their balance sheet and rumors started swirling around. And of course, when these venture capitalists and, and tech startups all speak to each other, so they all went for their, their money at the same time. You had a classic run in the bank and then the FDIC and the Fed had to, to step in to stabilize the, the system. You know, then all of a sudden, if you're in a regional bank in the U.S., you're thinking, hang on a second, should I be in a regional bank? Uh, I want to get out of here. And so you saw this mass transfer of, of deposits from regional banks to the, you know, your J.P. Morgans and your Wells Fargo, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when Signature and, and, and First Republic uh, really started to, to struggle. And so, yeah, and that's really the story of those, those regional banks. And then around about the same time, I guess, when you have this crisis of confidence, you have Credit Suisse also mm. running into financial difficulty, but as I understand it, it wasn't exactly the, for the same reason. No, no, it wasn't. I mean, the timing was was unfortunate. I mean, there, there are some related aspects, but I think, you know, if you look at Credit Suisse, if you had to say in a sentence, you know, why it failed, I'd say it was because of, of more than a decade of just, just gross mismanagement. You know, you look at any scandal which came out of the, the banking sector since the global financial crisis, it seemed that Credit Suisse's name was attached to it, whether it was money laundering for the Japanese banks or Bulgarian drug lords or helping Americans uh, evade tax. And then, uh, you know, created this culture of no one being accountable. And if you looked at the risk that they started taking on, I mean, any hedge fund which exploded, who was one of the largest shareholders that was Credit Suisse, whether that was Greensill in the UK or... Uh, Archegos uh, in the in the US, and uh, you know so when you have this crisis swirling around in in the US, and then Credit Suisse comes out and says you know we've had some material weaknesses in our financial reporting, you know that's enough to scare anybody, and then their largest shareholder, uh, which was the 
Saudi National Bank has said, listen, you know, we're done. We're not going to be bailing you out anymore. You know, it doesn't take a lot for people to say, okay, right, now it's time to get out of Credit Suisse and go somewhere else. And so, you know, the, the Swiss National Bank had to step in and essentially, long story short, had to broker a deal where UBS would take it over. And UBS got it out of steel. I think at Credit Suisse's prime, it was worth about 100 billion francs. This is at its prime, so quite a long time ago. And uh, I think it sold it to UBS for, for 3 billion. Oh, wow. uh, so, you know, they really did get a good deal. But uh, I think the thing that worries me there is you've all heard the phrase, you know, too big to fail. Now you've got this mega, mega interconnected global bank. Uh, and my question is, is it is it too big to save if things do start going down? Uh, but like I said, I think it's unless we have an extreme uh, collapse of confidence, I think the banking system is certainly far healthier than it was in 2008. Okay, and so in the last few months, we've had a you know a regional banking crisis in the US, Credit Suisse blowing up in Europe, and I start getting a little bit uneasy about banks, and then I look at the Orbis portfolio and I see, well, there's quite a few banks, so maybe you can just unpack how your banks are, are different or how you think they're different. We have a bunch of banks, and if you look at it, it's an eclectic bunch of Japanese, Korean, and, and Irish banks, and you know they don't have the same characteristics. Uh, of Credit Suisse or, or SVB. I mean, you look at their depositors base and it's uh, mainly retail depositors. So, you know, folk like like you and me, where if we disappear from our bank, it's really not the end of the world. They keep a, sort of a lot more cash on hand and what they invest in bonds, they invest in more short dated paper. And if they do have any interest rate exposure, then they would you know, do the necessary interest rate, rate hedging. And I think another thing which I'd point out is that they're all the, the biggest banks in their... Um, respective markets and so the regulator has their has their eye on them and so no shenanigans like credit suisse or the shortcomings of of svb so very happy to hold them and they are extraordinarily cheap i mean you look at our korean banks and they are the cheapest non-distressed banks in uh, in the world you know very simple exactly what a what a bank should be doing and in korea in particular one thing we're excited about is that those stocks have been cheap for a while, and what we're seeing now is a change in policy where before they would barely pay out any dividends, uh, and that's slowly changing. And you know we are engaging with management, and that looks like it's heading in the in the right direction. So we could see um, you know far better dividend yield going forward. The one aspect I might disagree with you is you said they were the cheapest banks in the world. I'd caveat as a as an in investor, developed market yes. banks. <laughs> As an investor in Frontier in Africa, we do <laughs> yeah. find also banks that aren't distressed trading on similar or even lower multiples. But I guess that's for a very different. But uh, just out of portfolio. interest, what, what would the what would the price of Tina be on on those kind of banks? So I mean, if you look at Frontier, our two biggest investments are in in Halleck Bank, which is the largest bank in Kazakhstan, and then we also own TBC Bank, which is effectively two banks in Georgia, Georgia, mm. the country that's just south of Russia, as opposed to Georgia the state in the USA. So Halleck trades at around 0.6 or 0.7 times price to book, but its ROE has been consistently over 25% the last decade. Hmm. And it's grown earnings anything between 10 and 20% per annum over that same time period. And so it trades on a P multiple of less than four times. And listener, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the terms, ROE means return on equity and PE is the price to earnings multiple. And then TBC is a little bit more expensive on a price to book basis. So at the moment it trades just over one times price to book, but also coming out of, you know, if you look at the history of Georgia, 
emerging from communism in the early 90s, massively low in terms of banking penetration. They've also been growing 35% market share, very well capitalized, growing earnings in dollars, also similar to kind of Halleck, 10 to 15% per annum over a very long period of time. The last few years have been even better, funnily enough, but um, trading on around four, four and a half times what we think are normal earnings. That is extraordinarily cheap, uh, but, yeah. but the Korean banks aren't too far from that. And the liquidity? No, the liquidity is very different. I mean, these, these are much, much smaller banks. So I think the market cap of TBC is about $1.7 billion. So, you know, it's, it's been fascinating to watch this sort of, you know, mini banking crisis. And, and, and the good news about that is when you have these things, it always gives you an opportunity to, to buy something else. And, and that's what we've been looking around. You know, what, what else can we, can we add to? And so, you know, one of the positions that we, that we have added to quite significantly because it's a company that we know well and we did already have a small position in it was Interactive Brokers, which behaved like a bank to a certain extent during the mini crisis, but certainly doesn't have the characteristics of it. And the kind of 60 second summary of why interactive brokers is attractive? So interactive brokers, I mean, I don't know if you do any of your, your own trading, if you have your own personal account, but if you if you don't and you, you're looking to open up one, interactive brokers is by far the, the superior product, right? You get access to to markets all, all over the world and that the price that, you, that you're paying for your trades are just, uh, the value for money working through that compared to, say, a, a TD Ameritrade or a Schwab is just considerably better. And, you know, what they're going for there at Interactive Brokers is is kind of like the, the Costco model that uh, Costco went for in the U.S. where they cut out the middleman. And so you've got far fewer people that it passes through, and the savings that you make are passed on to the, the customer uh, in the hope that that brings, you know, more people to the platform, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the flywheel that, they, that they're trying to build. And so, um, you know, their founder, Thomas Pettifee, I think he's got, you know, it's exactly the kind of business we're looking for, a person who's founded it, still in it, still owns a whole bunch of it, and is still uh, uh, passionate about it. So, you know, also has $4 billion of, of, of net cash. It doesn't have the duration mismatch that, a, that an SVB would have uh, or any credit risk at all. So, you know, very happy to hold it. It's interesting. Matt, I think we're almost out of time. So we've spoken quite a lot about all the various opportunities that Orbis is finding around the world. If you had to just finish off the conversation with how you think the opportunity set for Orbis today over your 20-year, roughly 20-year career? So I think I'll, I'll give two answers to that. You know, how, how excited are we about absolute return? And then how excited are we about relative return? In other words, absolute return is your investment going to go up and relative return is always going to beat the benchmark. And I think on, on an absolute return perspective, I'd say we are, you know, quite mediocre, maybe a, a six, six, six and a half. And this is South African grading, not American grading where everyone That's gets, out of 10, not 100. Yeah, that's, yeah exactly. <laughs> six and a half out of 10. And, but then on, on relative return, I think we, you know, nine out of 10. You know, really excited about this sort of bifurcated market and and uh, great old economy value stocks that we just think are, are fantastic and that we that we're happy to hold. And then if you look at what we we don't own, we're also very happy not to own that stuff. So when this all is said and done and things normalise, I think the the August funds will do will do very well. Great, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, appreciate you hosting me. We chatted through the current market shift and explained why Orbis are well positioned to do well in this environment. We also touched 
on why we believe that the value run is far from over, and we talked through some of the factors that have made it a very exciting time to be an active stock picker. To share your thoughts on this episode, you can send an email to info at alangray.co.za. This podcast is available wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to be notified of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions and explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Rory Kutiska-Jacobson from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you for listening.